All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Psalms 34, please. And let's read verses 11 and 12 together. Okay. Come, you little children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? We began discussing the subject of fear together because it was a question that many of you had. Many of you had expressed to me privately stating that you were concerned about fear and the uh, manner in which it was leading you to act. Fear is a reality that we all live with. It causes us to do things that we don't want to do and often can prohibit us from doing those things that we do want to do. Fear is one of those difficulties that everyone experiences at one point or another. So as I began to pray on how I may address this and help you with this subject, I realized that the only way that we can approach it is by approaching it in the manner of substituting a uh, taking or getting rid of an unhealthy fear and replacing it with a proper fear. A proper fear is the fear of the Lord. And as we realize the fear of the Lord, Nathan, can you please mute the monitors? Thank you. It's hard to get good help nowadays. As you replace the fear that you have that the world may create in you or a circumstances that you may face uh, brings about and stimulates you, there is something that has to counter that fear. And often it's said in this way, that faith overcomes fear, and that's absolutely true. But faith in and of itself is an empty substance. It's what faith is attached to that makes it Uh, substantial. It's our understanding of who God is that allows us to overcome fear with faith. In the Old Testament, this was known as the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is what allowed people to fear not. In the various places that we find that statement used within the Old Testament, it is used in a manner to allow the individual to overcome their emotional fear by substituting the fear of the Lord, which then led to faith in the Lord. Now, it's a little different in the New Testament, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But that being said, let us understand that David here desired to teach those the fear of the Lord. Both David and his son Solomon came to the end of their lives and both realized that it was imperative that they prepare their children to live more fruitfully and successfully with the Lord than even they did. Even though David was a man after God's own heart, we saw that David complicated his life by not being obedient to the Lord. Solomon was granted this incredible wisdom and yet made many foolish mistakes and many foolish decisions. Solomon realized at the end of his life that he 
hadn't really prepared his true legacy. That was his children. So he wrote the book of Proverbs for that purpose. He followed that book up with Ecclesiastes to help his children realize and learn from his mistakes and ultimately conclude that establishing a healthy fear of the Lord early on in their life would allow them to navigate through this world and avoid many of the complications that sin would introduce into their life. I cannot stress the fact that I have discovered myself that the fear of the Lord is an essential component to any believer's life. In the New Testament, it operates a little differently under the New Covenant, but it's the same principle. I've also realized that the greatest legacy that I could leave my child is helping her discover the fear of the Lord. We in America have made the mistake that if we solely provide the material benefits of life for our children, that they will discover happiness. They will discover satisfaction. No one had more earthly possessions than Solomon himself. There are those economists who estimate that Solomon's wealth was somewhere in the neighborhood of four, three to four trillion dollars in today's currency. And yet at the end of his life, he realized that he didn't apply the wisdom properly in various areas of his life, including his parenting of his children. And so trying to leave them the wisdom of his life and the mistakes contained within it, writing the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, everything begins and ends with God. He was incredibly concerned that the materialism that he would leave behind for his children after his death wouldn't benefit them, but corrupt them. Because they didn't have the fortitude to handle the materialism properly. Governing it as God would have them govern it. Stewarding as God would have them steward it. And as a result, Solomon tried desperately to get his kids' attention in hopes that they would discover the fear of the Lord early on in their life. Here David says the same thing, teaching those in whom he was addressing, calling them children, assuming a fatherly role before them, states, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So how is that done? How does one go about teaching someone else the fear of the Lord? Between David and Solomon, we find five distinctive statements describing the fear of the Lord and what benefit or what the fear of the Lord produces in the life of the individual. They are statements that are indicated by the fear of the Lord is. And there are five distinct fear of the Lord is statements in the Old Testament. Two in Psalms, three in Proverbs. Obviously, this was both a concern for David and for Solomon. And I think it should be a concern for us today. 
So let us begin this journey through the Old Testament. We're going to be giving you quite a few verses today. They'll be displayed on the screen behind me. So if you, do, if you will, take out a piece of paper, a pen. I don't care if it's a crayon. Take out something and let's begin recording these verses because I want you to go back and read them in the context in which they are given to see for yourself what the fear of the Lord is. And then at the end, we'll demonstrate that in the new covenant, Christ has allowed us a greater uh, ability to receive this fear through the Holy Spirit. Okay? So let us begin <coughs> in Psalm 19.9. For David says, the fear of the Lord is, and there is that statement, clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The very first description of the fear of the Lord is its ability to sanctify the individual. Now I'm using a New Testament term based on an Old Testament concept. The idea of sanctification was creating something clean or cleaning it from it once being defiled. It's a word that was used in the Old Testament to describe the process of cleaning the various utensils that were used in the temple, in the offering processes, by the priests before the Lord. And each time that they were used, they need to be sterilized and cleaned and sanctified, which means set apart for the purposes of being used before the Lord. In the New Testament, the idea of sanctification is a little different. The utensil that God sanctifies or cleanses is you and I. We become that vessel that God uses. And we are not washed with water, but by the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all. And we are set apart for the use of the Master here and now in this world. But the fear of the Lord was the catalyst that God used to separate people, to clean people, to lead them into obedience of His commandments, and in so being obedient to His commandments, separating them from the world. I say this often, and I don't think it could be said enough, that God loves you too much to leave you the way He found you. He finds us dirty and ragged and beat up by the world. He then saves us and begins to cleanse us, restore us, bringing us into the image of Jesus Christ, cleansing us from the inside and allowing that to overflow to the outside, changing the way we think, speak, and what we do through that sanctification process. As one wrote, he said this word is used 99 times in the Old Testament, primarily to distinguish things that were culturally pure, capable of being used in or taking part in the righteous religious rituals of Israel. We must be sanctified to be used by God for His purposes here and now. But in our lives, again, that sanctification begins with the new birth and continues our entire lifetime 
until that day that we go home. That's why we like to call ourselves works in progress. And each and every time we come to church, let us all understand that we're surrounded by people who are works in progress, right? We haven't arrived yet, even though some would like to believe they have. But we're all works in progress. That's why it's imperative that we show each other grace. Because God's still working. He's not finished yet. But that which He has started, He is faithful to complete. For He is the author and the finisher of our faith. But Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5, through he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that you should know how to possess his own vessel. Each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion or lusts, like the Gentiles who do not know God. All right, I'm going to give you a little little heads up. We're going to be wrapping this series up next Sunday, and then we're going to be diving into the book of James together. So be prepared. Okay, James says it likes it is, okay? He does it the Chicago way, all right? Here it is, not the corrupt Chicago, the tough Chicago that we all grew up in. But James said it very clearly, that one who is truly uh, saved will demonstrate that salvation by their works. Our faith must play out in our actions, thoughts, and deeds. Paul here is saying the exact same thing, that those who are truly saved will have a heart for righteousness, that they will possess their vessel, that is their body, in a way honoring of the new life in which God has given them, knowing it is the Holy Spirit who is sanctifying us and leading us away from sin that are derived from the passions and lusts of our own heart, to live, to honor God unlike the Gentiles who do not know God. We are to live differently because we are different. We're different in the fact that we've been born again. That was the beginning of the sanctification process. That was God taking us out of death into life, out of darkness into light. And now the Holy Spirit is saying, okay, here you are. Well, now I'm going to return you to that image that God had always intended you to Resemble, and that is the image of God, Christ Jesus himself. So number one, the fear of the Lord is clean. Number two, again, the psalmist writes in Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Any wisdom must have a point of origin. It must originate somewhere. The Bible tells us that there is two points of origination for wisdom in our world today. Number one, there is the wisdom from God that we're referring to here. But number two, there's a wisdom of this world. There are truly only two kingdoms here and now. There is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the ruler of this world, Satan himself. 
There is wisdom from God and there is wisdom that falls from Satan that is found in the wisdom of this world. So there's two orientations for both types of wisdom. Meaning each point of wisdom has a fixed point that it originates from. Paul alluded to this when he talked about the worship of the Romans. In Romans chapter 1, he describes individuals who suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness. And, and they've created idols that they worship in place of God. And he said something very interesting. He says, you worship the creature rather than the creator. The word creature there is an interesting word in the Greek. It talks about the natural world. He is basically saying you have traded the creator himself and have begun to worship the natural world, elements there within it, but nature itself, the physical world. The wisdom of this world is based upon naturalism, that is that all that truly exists in the reality that one apart from God occupies is this world. Now, they will dismiss any idea of a supernatural influence, but we know better. The Bible clearly tells us that this world is ruled by the ruler of this world, Satan himself. So Paul made it abundantly clear that the wisdom that is practiced within the world hasn't originated in the world itself, but has actually been influenced by the demonic world behind it. But then, there is the wisdom of God. Paul went on to say something very interesting when he said that if you reap to the flesh, you'll reap the whirlwind. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap the whirlwind. But if you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap eternal life. There is that contrast between the two. In the Old Testament, David begins to indicate that the fear of the Lord is the true beginning of true wisdom. And understanding that will lead us to keep his commandments and his praise will endure forever. Solomon went on to clarify his father even further in Proverbs 9.10 when he said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and notice, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If we are truly going to see this world correctly, we must see it through the knowledge of God. But as we had stated earlier in the announcements, this world is blinded by the ruler of this world, Satan. But our eyes have been open. We see this world for what it is through the lens of Scripture. We know that all that is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, designed to draw us away from God, where Jesus and the Spirit are trying to draw us to God through Christ. There's that conflict. That conflict continues within us. For the flesh wars against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. But then Paul goes on to say, walk now in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. 
The fear of the Lord was the beginning of wisdom. Understanding led to us keeping His commandments. But our true understanding only came about when we looked at this world through the lens of Scripture. All things must be evaluated through Him as our fixed point. It's interesting that if any of you have ever sailed or been out on a cruise ship, the ocean is a very big place, isn't it? When we went on our honeymoon, my parents generously gave us a cruise to the Bahamas. And when we were out on the ship, we were just amazed. We were sitting on the deck looking at the stars, and it was just incredible. And there was nothing but sea to the right, to the left, to the forward, to the back. Nothing. And we were on a very large ship, and yet the very tossing and turning of that sea could still be felt, even in that large cruise liner. And we were thinking about, oh, how difficult it must have been in ancient times for them to have crossed the sea in a sailboat, in a ship. What, what a difficult task that may be. Not only the weather itself, but the rough, the rough conditions of the sea, but then plotting a course and trying to find your way through that sea to arrive at your chosen destination must have been a daunting task, and yet they did it. And they did it by navigating by the stars. And the way they were able to do that is by choosing a fixed point and navigating from that fixed point. For us as Christians, there is only one fixed point by which we should navigate our life through this world, and that is God himself and his word. As we see the world reeling and stumbling over itself, It's because their fixed point continues to move. It's not a fixed point whatsoever. And they're being tossed to and fro. And the sand is being wiped out underneath their feet because they're not planted on the rock. It's become very difficult for people today. And that's why I find more and more people asking about God. Because they're searching for that fixed point in their life. Solomon went on to say in Proverbs 1.7, our third point, our distinction of the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. As Solomon begins to clarify for his children in the book of Proverbs, he says the beginning of knowledge starts with the fear of the Lord. And contrast that with the idea of the fool who despises wisdom and instruction. The only way that we can benefit by the knowledge of God is if we continue always to be teachable. We must remain teachable individuals, never thinking that we've perfectly arrived in our knowledge of God. As I often say to individuals who ask me about what it's been like to be a pastor all these years now, one of the things I often say is I feel I know less today than I did when I started. Oh, when I started, I thought I knew it all. Oh, how arrogant of me to think so. The vastness of God's Word, there's always something more to learn about God. Now, the fool is one described as an individual who knows what is right and yet chooses not to do it. 
That's the biblical idea of a fool. A fool is one who knows what is right, but has chosen not to do it. If we are going to remain teachable as individuals, it must proceed from a heart of humility. Pride will keep us from growing in our knowledge of God. Pride will keep us from obtaining the further depth of revelation that God desires to show us in and through his word. Solomon went on later in Proverbs to write Proverbs 15.33. For the fear of the Lord is in the instruction of wisdom. And before honor, that is the honor of applying and reaping the benefits of the wisdom applied, is humility. That's where it all starts. We must be humble before God. We must be careful that as we read the Word of God, not to be quick to place it upon others, but to look and allow it to examine our own hearts and minds. Maybe you've been tempted as you're reading your devotion. And as you're tempted, you're reading it, and you come across a verse that you are just confident that someone else needs to hear. And it's always an issue of correction. Oh my goodness. Oh, if so-and-so only knew that verse, they would realize that they are so wrong before God. I'm going to text it to them. But how do I block my number? I want, to think, I want them to think it's the Holy Spirit texting them. I know that once they read this, they're going to be so convicted and they're going to repent and become the person of God. Stop. Just Stop. It starts with you. Now, maybe that's the case on occasion. But if you find yourself texting others five days a week, I would suggest taking a step back and to see if that's really what God would have you to do. We must remain humble if we're going to become teachable and remain teachable. Now, The beauty of knowledge and wisdom is that we grow up. That we grow up. One of the fascinating things about child development today, especially in the ages of 18 to 21, right after they graduate high school, many are noticing that they may be very academically smart, but very ignorant when it comes to wisdom, how to apply that intellectualism in and through their everyday life. Real wisdom is the compilation of not only the application of knowledge, but the knowledge that is gained from the experience after it is applied. That's true wisdom. And in so doing, here's what you gain from that compilation. You gain discernment knowing what right from wrong. Paul said it this way. This is very interesting. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Writing to the Hebrews, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, he writes, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, the basics. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. 
But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of, notice the word, use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Our maturity is based upon our application of God's word, the gaining of wisdom, the learning from those experiences, right or wrong, to gain further discernment going forward. This is imperative that we understand this. Because in so many cases, we don't allow individuals to exercise this wisdom and knowledge, and therefore they never grow up. My dad's philosophy of parenting was, you know, that through the mistakes that I make, I will learn from those mistakes and gain wisdom and insights and not to repeat those mistakes again. Paul the Apostle said that if you stay only in the elementary pool of the knowledge of God, you will never grow up to have the deeper revelation, and by doing so, you will lack the knowledge you need to apply it into wisdom, and from that wisdom, you, the lack of wisdom, you'll never gain discernment, knowing right from wrong. That's what Paul is saying here. For the Old Testament individual, the fear of the Lord was the beginning of that process. Number four, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Notice, compared to humility, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Of course, we know that pride is a sinister villain and keeps us from the things that God would have for us. For he resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God Pride is what began the process of the fall from the very beginning. And pride is again a natural element of our fallen heart. But if we are going to have the proper perspective upon the knowledge of God, it must start with the mindset. This is encapsulated in the word hate. Now, you may think that hate is a term that shouldn't be used in the Bible, and I can understand why you may say that, until you realize that there are elements that God hates. And then you have to understand what he means by this hate. The hate in the New Testament that he speaks of is loveless. But in Hebrew, it means something more. It means that you view it as uh, uh, it's... What's the word I'm looking for? It is something that is going to keep you from what God has for you. It is an element that is going to destroy you. It's going to have negative consequences upon you. There's a direct correlation with the understanding of the Hebrew word used here for hate and its impact upon the life of the individual. We must start with the mindset that we hate evil. We hate sin, knowing that sin will destroy us. And later we're going to learn that sin will complicate our lives greatly. But once we gain that mindset, then we're able to proceed forward. 
the beginning of the sanctification process is the beginning of the adoption of the new mind that is found in the new birth. When Paul talks in Romans chapter 12, he states very clearly, let's look at it for ourselves because I think this is important. I want to show you New Testament examples of how the Old Testament is applied. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, notice what he says here. He says, I beseech you, therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is only your reasonable service. I added the word only in there because that is indicated in the original language. Verse 2. I do not, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of what? Mind. James clarifies that sin begins in the mind of the individual and finally works its way out and then produces death within the life of the individual. It all starts with our mind. This is why the gospel, Jesus said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So hating evil is adopting the mindset that we hate sin. And from that mindset, allowing the sanctification process to begin, that mindset is given to us, or we are capable of having that mindset in the new life that Jesus Christ gives us. Does that make sense? We can now have this mindset properly because of the new birth. But we still need to act upon it. But this is exactly what he goes on to say earlier in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 concerning God. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. A proud look. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. It begins with our minds. How do we deal with our minds? To not be conformed to this world, but be transformed? The Word of God. The Word of God implanted in our minds and hearts will have that effect in the sanctifying process of the Spirit. That's where it all begins. So if you want to cleanse your mind, start by reading the Word of God. In the New Testament, Paul said it this way in Romans 8, 6-7. He says, Do not be for, I'm sorry, for to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law, nor indeed can it be. He went on later to state in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 27, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, he says that you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to its deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, he says, 
and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in the true righteousness and in holiness. Therefore, put away lying. Let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your wrath and nor give place to the devil. It all starts with the mind. And in the Old Testament, the cleansing of the mind began with the fear of the Lord. Number five, Proverbs 14, 27. I told you there would be a lot today. For the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. To turn one away from the snares of death. This is interesting. And coming from Solomon, there's some real... It's ironic coming from Solomon because he learned it the hard way. So did David. David asked, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. And he said, now, if you, do you want to have a good life? Do you want to enjoy the years that God has given you? Then let me teach you the fear of the Lord. What does he mean by that? Well, in the Old Testament Jewish mindset, it meant keeping your life free from the consequences and the complications of sin. This is the fountain of life that they are speaking of. The fountain of life. Enjoying it freely and without complication, without consequence. How often do we read through the Old Testament of individuals who did not obey God, sinned in a certain way, and brought upon themselves serious consequences? I think of Abraham, right? He was given the promise that with Sarah that they would have the child of promise. But then Sarah came up with the idea of, well, just lay with my handmaiden Hagar and, and you'll have a child and through him shall God's promise be fulfilled, right? That child was Ishmael. And after that, one complication after another, right? Sarah became jealous of Hagar and Hagar was you know, expelled from the caravan, from the home. But later on, Ishmael became the father of the Islamic nations, and today we still see the complication that have occurred through that one sin of Abraham. I think of David. When David decided no longer to be on the front lines of the battle, but he stayed home, and as he was walking on his rooftop, gazed over and saw someone bathing, another man's wife. And to catch a glimpse of it initially innocently, if he just would have turned and went away, right? Just walked away, said, whoa, 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 I got to buy that guy some drapes. But no, he took that second look and entered into that temptation, and that temptation led to sin. And how much was his life complicated by his child through Bathsheba and of course, then the death of her husband and so forth. It just compiled one sin upon another. When Moses tried to take things into his own hands and kill that Egyptian guard, how did that work out for him? And over and over and over again, you see that. It's amazing how the world crafts Christianity and often says that God wants to keep you from the fun things of this world, the enjoyable things of this world. No, God wants you to keep, keep you away from the consequences and the complications of the sins of this world. That's what God wants to keep you away from. How many of us have 
complicated or gain consequences, reap consequences from bad decisions that we have made. We all have. The fear of the Lord was the beginning of the fountain of life. It was the beginning of enjoying the life that God says, I have come to give you life and that more abundantly. It's one thing to suffer at the hands of a cruel world, to be persecuted, to be hated as they hated Christ. It's another thing to complicate our lives with the sins of this world. The fear of the Lord was meant to keep people from complicating their lives through the sins of the world. The other thing I want to say about sin in just in a moment is that sin never only affects the person who has sinned. Sin in our lives always affect the people around our lives. There's always an impact to others from our sin. In a married couple, it could be the spouse. In a family, it could be the children. Somebody else is always affected and devastated by our sin. And we should keep that in mind before entering into the temptation that desires to draw us away from God and into that sin, knowing, hey, I'm going to hurt other people by doing this. So therefore, I'm going to resist this temptation. If Jesus Christ would have succumbed to the temptation of the devil in the wilderness, he would have never been able to save you and I. He knew that his sin would have a devastating effect upon all of us. And so does our sin before others. In Romans 6.16, Paul writes, he says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey? Whether it is sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Earlier on, Paul wrote in Romans, he said, now remember the sin, and I'm paraphrasing, this is the uh, Eric Standard version, uh, I'm paraphrasing. What benefit did that sin of your old life really gain you prior to coming to Christ? Now, why would you want to live within it anymore? That's what he's saying. To sum it up, I bring you to Isaiah 33, 6. And notice what Isaiah states. That wisdom and knowledge, specifically the wisdom and knowledge of God, will bring the stability of your times. The only way to be secure in an insecure world is to govern ourselves by the knowledge and wisdom of God. It will bring stability into the life of the individual. My job as your pastor, according to Ephesians 4.11, is to teach you and to equip you to fulfill the work of the ministry that you may grow to maturity and not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Jesus encouraged us not only to hear his word, but to do it. And in so doing, we're building our house upon the rock. And when the storms come, we shall stand compared to those who hear and do not do and build it upon the sand. And when the storms come, notice in both cases, the storms came in both individuals' lives. That house fell and great was its fall, the Bible says. As one wrote, he said, Here wisdom and knowledge should be understood as a great or superior wisdom. 
All of this is available to those who fear the Lord, who allowed the fear of the Lord to be the foundational orientation of life that gives balance to the individual as he relates both to his world and to his God. The fear of the Lord will bring stability because it brings with it knowledge and wisdom. That knowledge and wisdom is found in our Lord. Jeremiah said that the fear of the Lord would no longer have to be taught from person to person as David did Solomon, as Solomon did his children. In the New Covenant, in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, notice what he says. In the New Covenant that we operate within today, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. For I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for the Lord shall be known. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, and I will remember no more. The new covenant allows us the new birth. That new birth allows us the new mindset. That new birth is is assisted and then is accompanied by the resonance of the Holy Spirit within us. And as Paul then went on to say to the new believers there in Philippi, a verse that is often misunderstood and taken out of context, When Paul stated in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in in my absence. He says, now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And often they stop there. Work it out yourself. Do it yourself. Meaning, apply the knowledge that you have yourself. That's the way it's initially interpreted. Work it out for yourself. But then Paul immediately states, for it is God who what? It's who? God who works in you, both to will, that is the desire to do it, and to do it for his good pleasure. Gives you not only the desire, but the ability. The fear of the Lord needed to be taught and learned and acted upon in the Old Testament. Today, we are not asked to fear the Lord as much as we are asked to love the Lord. In the New Covenant, the main cornerstone element of our relationship with God is found in the idea to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus went on to say that if you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. The fear of the Lord motivating them in the Old Testament now has been replaced with a superior concept. James talks about this when he says, no longer are we under the law of Moses, the Mosaic covenant, but we are under a new law, a greater law. He calls it the law of liberty. 
the law of love. And in this new covenant, God gives us a new heart, a new mind, to will and to do for his good pleasure all that he asks us to do. Same thing, same concept, but applied differently under two different covenants. And now it no longer has to be taught, for they will know God, and in knowing God, they will learn to reverence God, to love God, to obey God. The fear of the Lord. Today we'll say the love of the Lord. Paul said it this way, for the love of Christ compels me. That's really where it's at. When you love Jesus, you just want to do what he has asked you to do. So let's do because we love him who first loved us.